everyone. I want to be able to state how I feel before I get into the episode. This is a disclaimer. I do not have an us versus them mentality towards people who practice religious sexuality, faith-based sexuality. Biblical sexuality or sexuality based on holy books or traditional viewpoints on sex. I do not have an us versus them mentality towards people who live these kinds of lifestyles. I say that because it's very easy to hear somebody talk and assume that they have a warfare agenda. That's not my agenda. Um, The reason why I'm doing this episode is because this is me healing sexually as a overcomer and victor over uh, sexual trauma. So you're going to hear me healing. Um, I look at all episodes I do as a form of creative healing because this is what the podcast, our podcast, is all about. So let me state my stance, my stances, before I go any further. This is the last disclaimer. I am an ethical premarital sex haver. I am an ethical fornicator. I am an ethical unmarried sex haver. I am an ethical casual sex haver. I'm an ethical sex haver. I practice ethical non-monogamy. I, and lastly, and I know that I am rewording the same statements already, but here's the last one. I am an ethical out of wetlock sex habit. Sex out of wetlock have ethically. That's me. That's what I do. And I am pro gay marriage. Yes, I'm pro same sex marriage. I am pro LGBTQI plus rights. I am pro transgender rights. Um, I am pro-LGBTQI plus culture. I am pro-gender and sexual diversity. I am for abortion rights. I am for reproductive rights. I am for women's rights. Um, I am pro-reproductive rights. I am not anti-abortion. If you had to put me in the pro-choice pro or pro-life category, I would place myself in the pro-choice category. That those are what those are my stances. And yes, I am a premarital kisser, ethically speaking. I'm a pro... (laughs) I'm a pro... all human rights kinds of person. Those are where I stand. And 
I had to say that so you will know my feelings. So now let's get into the episode now that I've set the records. Firm. All right. Firmly Virginia. February 16, 2011 by Stephen Prothero. This is BU.edu. This is an article. BU Theologian. The good book is not a rule book. The Bible's contradictions about sex. Jennifer Nust, an ordained American Baptist pastor and an STH assistant professor, discusses her new book with CAS religion professor Stephen Prothero, voted by Kimberly Corniel. Corniel. It is easy to label Jennifer Nust, the author of Unprotected Texts, The Bible's Surprising Contradictions About Sex and Desire, a Theological Renegade. R E N E G A D E. And she does say the sorts of things in this book about premarital sex and abortion and gay marriage that make conservatives shudder. But in one respect, at least, Nust, K-N-U-S-T, a school of theology assistant professor, is a throwback. Long ago and in a place far away, Christians used to actually fear God. They saw a yawning gap between their limited intelligence and the mind of God. So they were exceedingly careful about presuming what God had to say about almost anything. He who would learn astronomy and other recondite arts, wrote the protest Protestant reformer John Calvin, he should go elsewhere than the biblical text. Today, many supposedly conservative Christians have no trouble pontificating on what Jesus would do about the deficit or what the Bible says about war and peace or sex in the solar system. Nust, who is an ordained American Baptist pastor, thinks that this confidence is not only preposterous, but perhaps idolatrous as well. We sat down a few days ago, as people increasingly sit down nowadays in front of our respective computers, to discuss her new book, Prothero. Why another book on the Bible and sex? What does your book have to tell us that we don't already know? Nust says, because... The Bible continues to be invoked in today's public debates as if it should have the last word on contemporary American sexual morals. The only way the Bible can be a sexual rule book is if no one reads it. Unprotected text seeks to offer a comprehensive, accessible discussion of the Bible in its entirety, demonstrating the contradictory nature of the biblical witness and encouraging readers to take responsibility for their interpretations of it. But everybody knows the Bible is against abortion and gay marriage and premarital sex. Is everybody really wrong? Prothero asks that question. Nuss says, yes, the Bible does not comment on abortion and gay marriage. Some biblical writers argue against premarital sex or extramarital sex, especially for women. But other biblical writers present premarital sex as a source of God's blessing. Again, let me restate this. Prothero acts, but everybody knows the Bible is against abortion and gay marriage and premarital sex. Is everybody really wrong? Yes, the Bible does not comment on abortion and gay marriage. Some biblical writers argue against premarital or extramarital sex, especially for women, but other biblical writers present premarital sex as a source of God's blessing. Prothero asks, really? Where does the Bible give a green light to premarital sex? Perhaps the most striking example is in the story of Ruth, though there are other examples as well. According to the book of Ruth, when the recently widowed Ruth and her mother-in-law Naomi were faced with a famine in Ruth's homeland Moab, They returned to Israel impoverished and with little hope of survival. Ruth took to gleaning in the fields to find food for herself and Naomi. The owner of the fields, a relative of Naomi named Boaz, saw Ruth and was pleased by her. When Naomi heard about it, she encouraged Ruth to adorn herself and approach Boaz at night while he was sleeping to see what would happen. Ruth took this advice, resting with him until morning 
after first quote-unquote uncovering his feet. In Hebrew, feet can be a euphemism for male genitals. The next day, Boaz goes to town to find out whether he can marry her. And luckily, another man with a claim to Ruth agrees to release her. They do marry, and together they produce Obed, the grandfather of King David. None of this would have been possible if Ruth had not set out to seduce Boaz in the field without the benefit of marriage. Prothero asks, you say the Bible can't be used as a sexual rule book. Can it be used as a rule book for anything? Are Christians left to make moral choices without any guidance from biblical sources? We can certainly turn to the Bible for guidance on moral issues, but we should not expect to find simple answers to the moral questions we are asking. Sometimes biblical conclusions are patently immoral. Sometimes they are deeply inspiring. In either case, we are left with the responsibility for determining what we will believe and affirm. Okay, but what about Jesus? Can we appeal to him on those questions? Wasn't he opposed to divorce, for example? And what does his decision not to marry tell us today? Certainly, Christians should try to understand how Jesus might respond to a concern or problem they're facing. But Jesus' words do not come to us uninterpreted. Preserved within Gospels written several decades after his death, they have been reshaped in light of the experiences of the gospel writers. Also, those who have transmitted these sayings to us have left their own mark, sometimes editing and changing Jesus' words. This is particularly true when it comes to Jesus' teachings on divorce. As I show in my book, Jesus' sayings on divorce were presented in diverse, contradictory ways, though remarriage was universally forbidden. The prohibition against remarriage, however, makes sense when it comes to the gospels. All the gospel writers believe that Jesus will soon return to bring the kingdom of heaven, making marriage irrelevant. In my book, Religious Literacy, What Every American Needs to Know and Doesn't, I argue that American politicians often use the Bible without knowing what it really says. Is biblical illiteracy a problem in U.S. politics in your view? Yes. In political contexts, the Bible is repeatedly invoked as if it can support one particular view, Though upon a closer examination, it is quite clear that the passages is mentioned, if any are mentioned, say little to nothing about the topic at hand. The most egregious example is the citation of the epistle to the Ephesians as a support for quote-unquote biblical marriage, which supposedly means marriage between one man and one woman for the purpose of procreation. Ephesians simply does not endorse this form of marriage. Instead, Ephesians recommends that a man love his wife and children and be kind to his slaves. In a world where slaves could not marry and where their own sexual lives were entirely determined by their masters, this teaching endorses a hierarchical household where only certain men have access to the privileges of marriage, what they consider to be human property, and children. When it comes to the Bible and sex, who in your view gets it most wrong and who gets it most right? I'm not interested in judging who gets things wrong or right. Instead, I would like to convince all of us to take responsibility for the interpretations we are promoting. I would like us to stop pretending that the Bible has been dictating our conclusions to us so that we can evaluate the implications of what we are defending. The question for me is not whether interpretation is valid, but whether it is valuable and to whom. Why in your view are Americans so obsessed about sex? Why does religion collapse so readily into morality and morality into bedroom issues? I wish I knew. Perhaps focusing on morality, especially morality in the bedroom, makes it possible for us to avoid facing other more intractable problems. I-N-T-R-A-C-T-A-B-L-E. Perhaps speaking incessantly about sexual morals allows some to assert a position of moral su superiority 
thereby promoting their own brand of righteousness at the expense of someone else's. Or perhaps people are simply longing for certainty about a topic that impacts everyone, since every human person desires to be touched and loved. Every human body is vulnerable, and the sexual difference is one of the fundamental ways in which we are in which we experience being human. Absolute certainty about these matters would therefore be nice or available, as even the Bible can teach us it isn't. You want us to take responsibility for our interpretations, but isn't that precisely the rub in this debate? People who cite the Bible do so to call down the authority of God on their behalf. They're asking God to take responsibility for the interpretations because they believe that those interpretations come from God. What makes you so sure they are wrong? Because we are human beings, not God. By claiming that we could be certain about matters that we only partially understand, we are placing ourselves in the role of God. From a Christian perspective, anyway, this is a serious sin. Certainty is not granted to us. As an American Baptist and heir to both the radical reformation and abolitionist American Protestantism, I would affirm the interpretive perspective adopted by anti-slavery activists in the 18th and 19th centuries and insist that loving one's neighbor is God's chief requirement. I would defend this principle vigorously and I deeply value its implications. Still, I cannot claim that the Bible made me reach this conclusion. Some biblical passages can support my point of view, others do not. So as, I, so as firm as I believe that love your neighbor can capture God's point of view, I cannot be certain that I am right. Um, here's how I feel about this article. This article has truly healed countless aspects of the wounds that I experienced and the world of religion, especially pertaining to the contentious communication about truth and what is truth, who is truth. Um, and it's also helped me to understand that it's okay to embrace the absolute certainty that I lack absolute certainty. What's the best way to say it? I embrace not experiencing absolute certainty. I embrace gray areas. I embrace complexities. I embrace contradictions. I embrace mysteries. Um, I embrace not being God. I embrace not being the Messiah. I embrace not being the Christ. I embrace not being the Supreme Being. I embrace unanswered questions. I embrace constructive questions. I embrace unfilled blanks. I embrace being ignorant when it comes to certain matters. And so I'm very thankful for Jennifer Ness's thoughts. I feel more confirmation that I'm not the only person who has thought these thoughts. She has thought the same thoughts I'm thinking. And so I appreciate Jennifer Ness very much. Um, I'm truly honored to feature her on our podcast. Before I start any further, I practice 
secular sexuality. I practice ethical secular sexuality. I engage in secular sex ethically. I lovingly disagree with faith-based sexuality. I lovely I lovingly disagree with religious sexuality. I lovingly disagree with traditional sexuality. Um, I lovingly disagree with sexuality based upon holy books. Um, I don't have, that's not the type of intercoursing that I do. That's not the type of sex that I have. Um, I am pro-secular sex and I am pro-secular sexuality. I respect marital sex and marital sexuality, especially the ethical kind. And I have full-blown sex as a single person. I am permanently single and I'm permanently childless. Childless, I'm permanently childless. So, I have sex without a kid and I have sex without kids. And that is how I roll. Here we go. HuffingtonPost.com by Simcha Shakabavici, contributor, three-time Emmy-winning filmmaker, New York Times best-selling author, November 26, November 26, 2014, 10:58 East Coast time, updated January 26, 2015. Uh, this is a blog. Again, by Simcha contributor. Okay. They marry, but she's not simply Mrs. Jesus. She's a partner in redemption referred to as the daughter of God and the bride of God. Jesus' marriage to Mary the Magdalene is fact, not fiction. The publication on November 12, 2014 of the book I co-wrote with Professor Barry Wilson, The Lost Gospel, decoding an ancient text that reveals Jesus' marriage to Mary the Magdalene, has caused a worldwide theological firestorm, including demonstrations in India. I was even the butt of one of Bill O'Reilly's attacks and have challenged him to an on-air debate. So far, he's demurred. I think the reason for all this negativity is the proof for the historical marriage between Jesus of Nazareth and the woman known as Mary the Magdalene has become overwhelming. Even before our findings, everything Everything pointed to a marriage and nothing, nothing argued for Jesus' celibacy. The only thing that continues to argue for Jesus' celibacy is 2,000 years of theological bullying. This may come as a shock to most people, but the fact is that none of the four Gospels say that Jesus was celibate. The Gospels called Jesus Rabbi, Matthew chapter 26, verse 49, Mark chapter 10, verse 51, John chapter 20, verse 16. Rabbis then is now are married. If Jesus wasn't married, someone would have noticed. The greatest promoter of celibacy for Christians was Paul on every other matter of Jewish law. And Paul was a Jew called Saul at birth. Paul was lax. He threw out kosher laws, ignored Sabbath observance, and prayed that the hands of ritual circumcisers shake so that they cut off their own penises when they performed circumcision 
Galatians chapter 5 verse 12. Only when it came to sex, Paul was more severe than Moses and Jesus put together. Why? The answer may lie in Paul's background. As everyone knows, Paul of Tarsus came from Tarsus, an area of modern-day Turkey. What people don't know is that in the Tarsus of Paul's day, they worshipped a god named Attis. Perhaps not coincidentally, Attis was a dying and resurrecting god. He was called the Good Shepherd, and his earliest depictions show him with a sheep across his shoulders. All these images were later incorporated into the iconography of Paul's version of Christianity. Put simply, Paul's Jesus looks a lot like Attis. Attis had a great love in his life, Cybele. On their wedding night, Attis decided to make the supreme sacrifice and offer his testicles on the altar of his love. He surprised his virgin bride by castrating himself. This idea was a big hit in the Tarsus of Paul's day. Attis' priest, the Galli, would imitate their god by going into a frenzy, emasculating themselves, and offering their testicles as holy sacrifices. Not surprisingly, this once popular religion died out. For his part, Paul didn't promote literal castration, although some early Pauline Christians, example, Church Father Oregon, uh, did castrate themselves. In the spirit of Addis, Paul advocated abstinence and celibacy even in marriage. Example, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Had Jesus been celibate, Paul would certainly have invoked him as an example in arguing for celibacy, but he doesn't. Never once does Paul argue that Christians should be celibate because Jesus was celibate, not once. If one looks at the Gospels without Attis-colored Pauline glasses, there are many, many hints that Jesus was married. Specifically after the crucifixion, the Gospels agree that it was Mary the Magdalene who went early Sunday morning to wash and anoint Jesus' crucified body. Mark chapter 16, verse 1. People had the quaint idea that ancient Jews in Jerusalem went around, quote-unquote, anointing each other. They didn't. What the Gospels are telling us is that Mary the Magdalene went to Jesus' tomb to prepare his body for burial. That's the Gospels, not me. Then and now, ain't no, then and now, listen up, y'all, then and now, no woman would touch the naked body of a dead rabbi unless she was family. Jesus was whipped, beat, and crucified. No woman would wash the blood and sweat off his private parts unless she was his wife. Besides the canonical gospels, there are the so-called Gnostic gospels. The Gnostics or wisdom seekers were an early branch of Christianity whose origins we don't know. What we do know is that they represent the losers in the Christian orthodoxy game. After the fourth century, the church burnt Gnostic holy books and the people who believed in them. As a result, until recently, we had almost no Gnostic gospels to refer to. In 1947, in Nag Hammadi, Egypt, the Gnostics got their revenge. At that time, several of their gospels were found hidden in jars. They all tell the same story. Jesus was married. More than this, for his Gnostic followers, Jesus' marriage and sexual activity was more important than his death and resurrection. Simply put, there were more inter- they were and listen up on this one. Simply put, they were more interested in his passion in bed than in his passion on the cross. What does archaeology have to say about a married Jesus? In 1980, in Talpiot, just outside of Jerusalem, archaeologists discovered a 2,000-year-old burial tomb. In the tomb, there were 10 ossuaries. Example limestone coffins. Six of them were inscribed. One of them had the Hebrew slash Aramaic name Jesus son of Joseph scratched on its side. 
another Maria, yet another Yosef, a nickname referred to in the Gospels as belonging to one of Jesus' brothers. Mark chapter 6, verse 3, Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. A fourth ossuary was subscribed with the name Matthew, and a fifth, the only one in Greek with the name Mariamine, Maria Mean, Maria Men, a Greek version of Mary, associated in all of Greek literature with one woman only, Mary the Magdalene. Even more disturbing for Pauline Christians, a sixth inscribed ossuary, apparently of a child, had the name Judah, son of Jesus, carved on it. So what happened with this paradigm-shifting discovery? Nothing. Between 1980 and 1996, no archaeologist ever reported the find. It took my 2007 documentary, The Last Tomb of Jesus, in my co-authored book, The Jesus Family Tomb, to propel the find onto the headlines. And what was the world's reaction? Again, nothing. In the spirit of the life of Brian, According to the scholarly consensus, the tomb must have belonged to another Jesus and two other Marys. After all, if you believe that Jesus is an Addis-type God, he can't have a coffin, certainly not a wife and not a child, that could have resulted from their sexual union. This brings us to our lost gospel. It appears to be a 6th century Syriac Christian Aramaic text that is a translation of, the, of, er, of an earlier Greek text, 4th or 2nd century, that Professor Barry Wilson, I believe, preserves a 1st century tradition. The text in the rare manuscript section of the British Library for the past 160 years is ostensibly about the biblical Joseph of multicolored coat frame and his obscure wife, a Senate. But in the Syriac community from which this gospel emerged, Joseph was a stand-in for Jesus and as Senate, had many children by the crucified, him 21 of Ephraim the Syrian. Clearly, we are dealing with a very thinly encoded text concealing a gospel that would otherwise have been destined for the bonfire. In our manuscript, Joseph, also known as Jesus, is identified with the sign of the cross tracing blood. Some have argued that this manuscript does not refer to Jesus. If so, why the sign of the cross? Why the blood? And why is he explicitly called the son of God? As for Asenath, our manuscript depicts her as living in a tower. The Hebrew for tower is Migdal, hence Mary the Magdalene. It's not her last name, folks, it's a title. It means Mary the Tower Lady. In our lost gospel, she is depicted as a Galilean Phoenician priestess that abandons idolatry after meeting and falling in love with Jesus. They married, but she's simply, they married, but she's not simply Mrs. Jesus. She is a partner in redemption, referred to as the daughter of God and the bride of God. Our lost gospel says that Jesus and Mary had two children, and it witnesses to the idea that for their earliest followers, Jesus and his wife Mary were co-deities embroiled in the politics of their times. Pauline Christians can continue to have faith in a celibate savior who's divorced from his family, his people, and his times. But for me, the most important revelation in this long ignored manuscript has to do with a foiled plot on Jesus and Mary, the Magdalene's lives, about 13 years before the crucifixion. If our historical sleuthing is correct, this text is a gospel before the gospels so we could finally return Jesus of historical context from which Paul removed him. What are my thoughts? I believe that Jesus married Mary the Magdalene. I believe that Jesus and Mary the Magdalene had two children the natural biological way. I don't believe that Jesus was celibate. 
I believe that Jesus is a sexual being. I believe that Jesus had a wife and two children. I believe that Jesus had full-blown sex. I believe that Jesus is not a virgin. And it helps me heal because I appreciate Jesus so much more for truly going above and beyond to, to show to me that he understands eroticism and he made it personal for himself. I really appreciate that about him. Um, so I believe that Jesus' marriage to Mary the Magdalene is fact. Not fictional at all. That is my stance. Oh, here we go now. Here we go. Posted on October 2nd, 2012 by Marilyn Sewell, The Sexuality of Jesus. Karen L. King, a professor at Harvard Divinity School, has caused quite an uproar with her discovery of a scrap of 4th century papyrus that suggests Jesus may have been married. And I said before, I believe Jesus may have been married. She is not the first to speculate about Jesus' marital state. Various theologians, as well as writers of fiction, have suggested that Jesus was married or gay or bisexual. Personally, I am comfortable with Jesus being any sexual orientation any gender identity and any sex characteristics. That's how I feel. King is the first with primary evidence that may be credible, though not definitive, as she has conceded. The significance of King's discovery is that it has pushed both Christians and non-Christians to think about Jesus as a sexual being. As you know, I think Jesus was I think Jesus is a sexual being. Christian tradition in avoiding the question and seeing Jesus as asexual or antisexual has been guilty of failing to make him fully human. How that's in pause right there. Jesus is not antisexual. All right. I'm not antisexual. Would I appreciate Jesus if he was celibate? Yes. Would I appreciate Jesus if he was a childless man? Yes. Um, so there's nothing wrong with asexuality. There's nothing wrong with childlessness. There's nothing wrong with never being married and not being married. So. It, you know, even if those things are true about Jesus, I appreciate him just the same. But I don't believe that Jesus was asexual. Um, and that's just my personal stance. So how did this tradition develop? Although the earliest church was Jewish, the gospel was being preached chiefly to the Gentiles. They were immersed in Greco-Roman philosophical ethics, which posited the dualism of body and soul. Paul himself had studied widely in this tradition, and the impact of that philosophy shows up clearly in his teachings. He saw the body as a hindrance to the spirit, at best a temporary housing for the soul. And I want to say this. I love that Jesus is fully human. 
um, the body and the soul, the flesh and the spirit, I make them one and whole. I make them inextricably connected. I make them friends and allies and accomplices of of moral nobility to each other. That's how I do. Control of their fathers, including sexual control, was essential for the early church because of their conviction that they were in the quote-unquote end time. Modern-day readers of the scripture often greatly underestimate the importance of the eschatological time frame of the early Christians. Sexual abstinence was practiced not because of some imagined abstinence of Jesus, but rather because these Christians thought earthly time was limited. Also, perhaps, early Christians wanted to set themselves apart from the known sexual access of the Roman world. Pause. I, res- I, I deeply respect abstinence, chastity, and celibacy, but I personally do not practice abstinence. I personally do not practice chastity, and I personally do not practice virginity because I am not a virgin. I am not a lip virgin. I have kissed on the lips many times, and I have had full-blown sex many times. Augustine of Hippo 354-430, arguably the most influential theologian of Christendom, this is Augustine of Hippo, actually, answered the question, how are we to be saved from a Platonic perspective? He propagated the belief that the sex act itself was sinful. I strongly disagree with him on that, and that original sin was transmitted by concupiscence. I strongly disagree with him on that. So for Augustine, we poor humans are inherently sinful. I call lie, L-I-E on that one. Since Jesus was perfect and without sin, it follows that he must have been conceived by God and born of a virgin. And needless to say, never had sexual feelings himself. Those things are falsehoods about Jesus. And I stand by that statement I just made. So Augustine's unfortunate premise and shaky logic calls into question human sexuality, per se. It follows that those who strive for the purity of Jesus will look upon their sexual impulses as sinful. We use sex for pleasure as well as procreation, of course, but often the pleasure is laced with guilt, and we find ourselves unable to celebrate sex with our whole being. Instead of integrating our sexuality with our spirituality, the cultural norm evidences a striking incompatibility of our sexual impulses with our yearning for God. Women are reduced to the virgin and the whore. Ridiculousness of the highest degrees is how I feel. In spite of the supposed freedom of young women to indulge in loose sexuality liaisons, the double standard still reigns. Bad girls are for sex, good girls are for marriage. How many synonyms for a quote-unquote slut do you know? First of all, women are women, girls are girls. Girls are not women, and women are not girls. Second, the double standard is dead wrong. The double standard is unnecessary and uncalled for, and the double standard is heartless. The double standard symbolizes cruelty. Um, And hypocrisy and hypocritical 
judgmentalism in the name of moral excellence is barbaric and nauseating to me. Was Jesus married? The Gospels are silent about the subject, but as William Phipps argued long ago, was Jesus married? Harper in Rome 1970. Jesus most likely followed the expected pattern of conduct for the young man in ancient Judaism, which was to be betrothed shortly after puberty. I believe that's exactly what happened. In fact, marriage was not a question to be determined by a Hebrew boy, rather it was his father's duty to betroth his son. That's true. The average age of marriage for a boy was 16, and the age of betrothal even younger. That is true. We know that Jesus was circumcised at the age prescribed and that he was taught scripture and apprenticed as a carpenter. Is it not reasonable then to believe he was an obedient son of being betrothed and later married? Completely reasonable to me. Of course, it is difficult for some Christians to accept the fact that Jesus was throughout his life a Jew. Jewish Jesus is a fact of life. Certainly, Jesus' open, easy, egalitarian relationships with women were unconventional, which I personally appreciate. He was known to consort openly with prostitutes. Yay! He drew many faithful women followers who were apparently treated as equal to his male disciples. Nice! This accepting attitude of Jesus toward women stands in great contrast to the heavily patriarchal Hebrew practice of his day. That has my approval. Even a cursory view of the scripture shows us Jesus to be intensely alive, vital, and responsive. That makes me happy. He had a strong sense of humor, and he was certainly no ascetic. I'm smiling about that. Jesus, in fact, was criticized by his enemies for being a glutton and a wine bibber. He is so relatable. He enjoyed the company, conversation, and the celebration of marriage feast. He's a cool customer. He was forever eating and drinking in many various homes of saints and sinners alike during his ministry. That's marvelous in my eyes. He was pleased and delighted to be anointed with sweet-smelling oil. Way cool. Moreover, Jesus was keenly aware of the natural world, the reaping of grain, the sheep in the fold, the sparrows' flight in the marketplace, the the wind listing where it will. The images in many of his parables are drawn from the sensual pleasures of everyday life. Yeah, yeah. Surely we could conclude from the evidence that Jesus was very much in touch with the erotic dimension that is the life force within him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. To believe that he could be this responsive to his immediate environment and be unaware of himself as a sexual being is highly unlikely. I say that's truth-telling right there. Chances are that this very sensual man was moved to sexual desire easily and frequently. I know that's the case. I think that Jesus is a sexual being and that Jesus is a very sensual man, I think that Jesus is moved to sexual desire easily and frequently. Typically, Christians are afraid of Jesus' humanity, preferring to see him as a divine stick figure without the usual human flesh and frailty. That's not my problem. Why does this image persist? Perhaps it's because we all... Perhaps it's because we know all too well the failures and inconsistencies of the flesh. We know we are animals. We know the ways in which our physical needs and desires upset our equilibrium. Could Jesus really have awakened with an erection? I think he does. Or desire a sensuous woman in the marketplace? He does. Blasphemy. No, it's not. To conceive of Jesus struggling in the same way is unthinkable. It's thinkable to me, and it's comforting to me, too. Maybe these images seem blasphemous because we don't want a dark clothing flesh. Not blasphemous to me. I want God clothing flesh. I like divine human bodies. I do. We cannot accept incarnation. We need a God up there, perfect in beauty and form. 
we deny Jesus' humanity because we can't stand his likeness to us. Those are not my issues, thankfully. I don't do those things. And Jesus, God is saying to us, accept your own sacredness and beauty. This is what it can mean to be human. Thank you, Jesus, for making that statement. Thank you, God, for making that statement. But we turn away afraid. Nope, I turn towards encouraged. The Jesus I know is robust, a carpenter, capable of doing heavy work. He is a fleshly man, built with thankfulness to the beauty of the natural world, and one who enjoys good food and drink. He is a man of great tenderness, not ashamed of his tears. He does not hide his feelings and go straight to the heart in a few words. The Jesus I know enjoys his body and is aware of the wonders of its shape and movement, likes to feel the sun on his limbs, takes pleasure in resting after a long day's journey. He likes the feel of splashing water on his skin where he washes. Perfect depiction of Jesus. And he is a sexual man, one who enjoys being a man, including having a penis. Though it is sometimes troublesome for him, demanding attention when he wants to be otherwise occupied. But accepts that as, he accepts that as simply part of what it is like being thirsty or feeling weary or getting angry. Sexuality is part of being human and it's good. Another perfect depiction of Jesus. In his remarkable self-acceptance, Jesus seems to bring new life to whoever comes near. His presence is extraordinarily vital. It's fearsome and calls for a profound response. Jesus is in fact God's invitation to wholeness and selfhood. When we are able to celebrate Jesus in the flesh, we understand that we too are called to incarnation, called to embody God's spirit in our earthly form. Perhaps this challenge is too daunting, so we prefer to strip Jesus of his humanness and to deny our own potential for divinity. Karen King has access to consider what we have lost. Jesus is a sexual man. I think Jesus masturbates and I think that Jesus has nocturnal emissions. Yes, Jesus has pleasure. 